At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. So many of my stories come secondhand, anecdotally, if you might say, and that's really why we started this podcast close to, well, three, three and a half years ago, I think, maybe four. I'm losing track in my old age here. But what we all, what the common vein and common thread amongst all these is that they are stories brought out of real, actual life. And that's what the power in each and every single episode has. This episode, we had the opportunity to bring those stories to life, but see if we could find the answer to the question of, are these things happening in a vacuum or... Is there some other more nefarious actors in healthcare, broadly speaking? So to help us with this conversation, please welcome Jonathan Tico of Tico and Zavari, LLP, a law firm out of Washington, D.C., California, splitting the coast. Jonathan, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah. Hi, Chris, and thanks for having me on. Look forward to the conversation. Now, should we go full tinfoil hat on this one or uh, save that for a few minutes into it? Well, you know, the, the, beauty, of, uh, the beauty of what I do, and uh, I can describe a little bit of kind of what my niche is as a lawyer, but the beauty, the beauty of what I do is I get to actually work on all of these crazy conspiracies, at least the ones that turn out to be true. I th- that's a good distinction, right? And I apologize. I did not introduce you as an attorney. I just went around your <laughs> law firm there. So I appreciate you doing uh, some ground setting there. So Jonathan, give us a little bit of a heads up of really what that means to be in your line of work. And again, I don't want conspiracy to mean this, you know, we didn't land on the moon, that kind of stuff, unless you can tell me that we actually didn't. And then, yeah, no, I don't know anything about be that. Absolutely blown. But in healthcare, we hear so many horror stories in healthcare of patients being mistreated, doctors being mistreated, coding going horribly wrong. It's really this drive for revenue maximization that has a lot of us running for the hills saying, this is so screwed up. Yet, is this happening everywhere where people are just forgetting the human element? Well, I guess what I would say is that in any system as big as the American healthcare system is, there is going to be a certain amount of fraud. The vast, vast majority of the players in our healthcare system are in it for the right reasons, are trying to do the right thing by their patients, by their customers, by their clients. But there will always be fraud. That's why we have laws. You know, you can outlaw murder, but people still get murdered, right? And the same is true in business fraud. You can you can outlaw uh, various types of business fraud, 
it doesn't stop it from happening. It just means that you have a system for dealing with it. And that's where my practice comes in. I specialize in representing whistleblowers in cases under the False Claims Act, which most people in healthcare have probably heard of this statute, but it's basically the law that makes it illegal to commit fraud on government-sponsored healthcare programs, Medicare, Medicaid, and so forth. And so any significant healthcare fraud scheme is is likely to violate that statute because so much of the healthcare dollars are government-funded. And the unique thing about the statute is that a, a private citizen, a whistleblower, can actually bring a claim under the statute in the name of the government. You're, you're operating essentially as a, as a stand-in for the government to try to recover money for the healthcare system. And then if you're successful, you get a percentage of that as kind of your reward, your incentive for having done that. So that's my practice. It's kind of a niche practice in the, in the law world, but it's a, a very interesting one. And most of our clients, are, I suspect, are the same types of people that would be interested in what you do, Chris, because they are often healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, therapists, or people on the business side of healthcare who you know, are kind of trying to do the right thing in that system and find themselves caught up in uh, in kind of the, the seamy underside, I guess. Now, Jonathan, I, I honestly did not think this would be a lead generation opportunity, but I'm always going to go ahead and take it uh, anytime, anywhere, you know, that we can we can do that, help doctors extricate, extricate themselves from the system there. But all right, so I'm curious, I'm going to I'm going to bite on that. How often do these things happen? How often are there whistleblowers out there in the country saying this isn't right? We're I know we're violating stuff, but nobody else is listening to me. Well, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that frequent. But if you just look at numbers, the numbers seem big, right? So I'll, I'll give you a couple of statistics. One, every study that's ever looked at this has found that about 10% of the money that goes into our healthcare system from the government goes to fraud, waste, and abuse. Now, that's the phrase that's always used, fraud, waste, and abuse. That's not exactly the same thing as violations of the False Claims Act, right? Violations of the False Claims Act tend to be things that are more intentional, um, not just wasteful. But you know, there's 10 percent of the of the money that the government spends in healthcare isn't really going for its true purpose. Let's put it that way. And then in terms of the number of cases that are brought, so each year there are about somewhere between five and six hundred new cases brought under the False Claims Act, and about seventy percent of those are in the healthcare arena the vast majority of them. So, you know, that's 400 cases a year. Now, not all of those cases are successful and uh, maybe not all of them have merit, but but a lot of them do. So th- those are the sort of the rough statistics. 10%, I mean, that's a big number. It's a huge number. It's a huge number in dollars when you think of how big the healthcare system is. Sure. Yeah. And so I, I appreciate the distinction that you made right there that, hey, just because it's you had a beautiful term for it. I'm going to butcher it, but you know, ways that doesn't mean it's criminally negligent. What else makes up that 10%? Well, when HHS thinks about fraud, waste, and abuse, there, you know, some of it is the just the waste, let's say. All right. So the waste is just you're doing something inefficiently. You're not really getting the bang for your buck that you're hoping for. The fraud and abuse is kind of the intentional side and the stuff that's more likely to to result in the type of case that I work on. And those, those are 
you know, often intentional fraud schemes in the healthcare world. And there's there's a variety of them, which, you know, I, I can kind of run through some of what the big categories are if you want. But there's a variety of fraud schemes where individuals or companies are uh, trying to take advantage of, uh, you know, the way that we pay for healthcare in the country. The 10% is really sticking in my mind here, Jonathan, because I know I've read somewhere that for every healthcare dollar spent, administered through a third-party system, 10% of that dollar will actually go to take-home pay for physicians, nurse practitioners, the people actually providing the care. And so I'm thinking in my mind, like, wow, as much as we pay our physicians and people who we trust to take care of us, the government just kind of slots that exact same amount of dollars and just says, well, this stuff is going to be gone as soon as we, as soon as we write the check. And so that's why it kind of stuck out in my, my mind of it's not an insignificant amount when people start breaking it down. Like you said, it's a huge amount of dollars, but there's so much other stuff in that pie, I guess. So anyways, when somebody raises their hand and calls you up and says, Jonathan, I, I got an, I got something for you here. What's kind of that process? Walk me through, I guess, a day in the life of a whistleblower who finally brings something to the light. You know, often these are people that have tried to solve whatever it is the problem that they're seeing. They've tried to solve it internally at the business and are getting pushback and sort of being thwarted in solving whatever they think the problem is in the business. Usually by the time I get a call from somebody like that, something has already gone wrong in sort of what you might call the compliance system of that healthcare entity. And that could be anything from a physician practice group all the way up to a hospital chain to a huge pharmaceutical company, right? So these are often people that have spotted something that's going on within the company that they think is unlawful or fraudulent. They've sort of complained or tried to fix it internally, been thwarted, and now they're looking for some other way to make it right. And so, you know, when they reach out to me, we go through a process of sort of vetting those complaints. I mean, sometimes people think that there is something unlawful going on. And then when we really look into it and dig deeper, we're not so sure or we think it's not. And that's not a criticism of the people who call us. It's just that these are very complicated legal issues sometimes. And also in big companies in particular, people are very siloed. So they will sort of see something that they think is smoke, right? But they don't necessarily see the fire, but they're pretty sure the fire's there. And then when we look into it, we either conclude that, no, what you think is happening probably isn't really happening, or we just can't tell. We just don't have the evidence. But in those cases where, where we conclude that there is an actual fraud scheme occurring, then the process under the False Claims Act is you you file a lawsuit. This is just like any other lawsuit. It gets filed in federal court. The main difference is that unlike a normal lawsuit, which you immediately serve on the defendant and go into litigation, under the False Claims Act, when you file that case, it's filed what's called under seal. It's, it's a secret filing. The company or the individual that you're suing doesn't know that they've been sued. Instead, the complaint goes to the Department of Justice, and you also provide the Department of Justice with whatever evidence you have that supports your allegations. And then the Department of Justice has a whole group of attorneys who are devoted to investigating and pursuing these claims. And so they will interview you and open an investigation to try to determine whether there is an actual violation going on. They often are working hand in hand with uh, investigators from the uh, Office of Inspector General at HHS, HHS OIG. 
And those investigations, you know, are often multi, multi-year investigations. At the end of that investigation, the government makes a decision about whether to intervene in the case or not. That just means that the Department of Justice is going to come in, take over the case on your behalf and pursue it. Um, if they decline intervention, then the whistleblower, the, the person bringing the case, does have a right to pursue the case on their own without the government's help. And at the end of the day, if the case results in a recovery for the government, then the the sort of the financial reward to the whistleblower, the incentive, if you will, is uh, is a range of between fifteen and thirty percent of whatever is recovered for the government. Some of these cases are extremely large. You know, a ten million dollar case would be considered a small case in the healthcare world, and some of them are upwards of a billion dollars. So you know, do the math: fifteen percent of ten million is is one point five million. That would be at the low end of a successful healthcare fraud case. And the whistleblowers um, sometimes earn rewards of, of tens of millions of dollars. Now, it takes years and years to get there, and only a small number of cases you know, actually achieve that result. But that is kind of the, you know, at least if you, if you bring a successful case, you can earn a fairly substantial reward. We're talking with Jonathan Tico, an attorney um, with Tico and Zavari representing whistleblower cases, fraud cases. So, Jonathan... We talked about a day in the life of somebody who says, hey, this isn't right. I'm going to bring a case up. What happens if a company or a nonprofit or whoever it is, um, defendant, plaintiff, I don't know. The defendant. Defendant. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, You can see how much time I spent in law school. Um, (laughs) Zero. Uh, The defendant, if they're on the losing side of this, is this just a monetary fine? Because to me, that, that seems like a slap on the wrist. Right. Uh, no, I mean, usually it's much more than a monetary fine. Um, you know, uh, particularly in the cases where the government intervenes, where the government uh, does an investigation and believes that there is actually some fraud going on sort of at the corporate level, they will usually also demand what's called a corporate integrity agreement, a CIA. And that will be an agreement between the company and the government for the company to essentially improve its compliance procedures and there will often be some reporting and monitoring requirements that go along with that so that the government can check to make sure that the additional compliance procedures are actually put in place. And then, you know, in extreme cases where they think it's really sort of the most clear-cut intentional fraud, there can also be criminal charges brought against the individuals who were involved. I've been involved in a number of cases where, you know, we were pursuing our case, which is a civil case for money, but the government was simultaneously pursuing criminal charges against some of the individuals who had sort of uh, led the scheme, if you will. And then certainly for for providers, there there can be a debarment, basically getting kicked out of the, the Medicare system. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's got to be some more heavily handed um, penalties, I guess, repercussions be more more accurately coming through here. You talked mostly about Medicare. And in my world, Medicare is always a hot topic because a lot of uh, physicians in the direct pay world opt out of Medicare completely because there's such gray area in what I can do and can't do, what I can charge and what I can't charge, that physicians are fleeing it left and right. Any any advice for somebody looking at Medicare and saying, well, it, I, I don't know if these really apply to me, so I'm just going to go ahead and and, and get out of the thing completely. Well, I totally understand why physicians have that view of the system. It's a complicated system. It's an ongoing battle between the physician groups and HHS over reimbursement rates for various things. And 
I'm not sure that the Medicare system is any worse than private insurance in that respect, but it's just so big and bureaucratic. I certainly would not blame a physician who was able to build a practice without that. You know, as a society, I guess we don't want all of the physicians leaving Medicare because, you know, Medicare is the primary source of healthcare for senior citizens in our country, which is where a lot of the healthcare is. And not everybody can afford to pay for healthcare on their own. So it's an important part of our healthcare system. But from the perspective of an individual physician, I can certainly appreciate that. And the the clients that I've had who are doctors have often expressed to me a lot of frustration with the system. If you have any buddies in Washington and just maybe just kind of nudge them in the ribs and say, hey, let's make this a little simpler. What what changes would you make? Uh, to Medicare? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mandatory enrollment for physicians, uh, let people opt in rather than also automatically getting into there. There's some rules around ordering and referring that are just nonsense to somebody who might be opting out that says, hey, I think I can order tests for you. Basically free up the physician to be able to take care of patients the way that they want it. I always view Medicare plans as the government minimum. And frankly, I don't think government minimums are going to be the best for the vast majority of people because it is a government mandated minimum for 400 million people. So those are the ones off the top of my head. I I wasn't planning on uh, spitting those out, but we get asked them a lot. And so there's a lot of it. Um, The big one is um, if you price below what Medicare reimburses, then that can be considered Medicare fraud as far as we understand it. So that's why a lot of direct pay physicians opt out of Medicare because the prices are actually lower than what Medicare repays the physician, reimburses the physician to actually see somebody. So huh. I've never heard that before. <laughs> enabling the free market to actually lower, if that's right, I'll let you buy me a beer next time in DC. Okay. So I'll, I'll I believe uh, you. I mean, but the, I guess what, what I tend to see is the fraud usually goes the other way. It's that the provider thinks Medicare isn't paying them enough. Oh, yeah. And so they look for ways to increase their reimbursement that are kind of not in compliance with the rules. That's usually where at least physician practice groups or hospitals get into trouble. They, they start doing upcoding or, you know, mm-hmm. unbundling that type of thing. Yep. So it's, you know, the, the fraud schemes tend to be on the other side. So maybe that's just what I'm seeing. Oh, I, I'm not arguing that at all. Um, it's all right there. And, and that's why, you know, I mentioned, is this just revenue maximization? And that's what we hear from physicians all the time who are leaving hospitals. They're saying, look, this person came in, presented XYZ. I said, great, this is it. And then I get yelled at because I didn't say, I didn't code for A, B, C, D, E, F, and XYZ. You know, I didn't escalate this into a level four when it's just a level two. And and when you talk to a doctor, and they're, they're shoving, you know, they're reciting a bunch of codes at you. And I'm like, did you go to coding school or did you go to medical school? Because which one? Because you seem more proficient in the coding side of it. And they're just like, it's, that's the nature of the business right now. So I'm right there with you. Yes, there are people that do that. There are institutions that do that. There are hospitals that do that. I think anybody who's received a large medical bill from a hospital and has actually looked at it and says, well, I never actually saw this doctor. Why is this person's charges on my, on my uh, bill here? That stuff happens every single day, it, but I don't think it's going to be the threshold, you know, that, that gets anybody's attention. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, no, and the 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 cases where our client is a is a physician or a or a nurse or a therapist, some like a, an actual you know frontline provider, those cases almost always involve exactly that situation that you're describing, where the provider thinks the company that they're working for is has created undue financial pressure on the providers. And 
that the result of that is that as an institution, they are overbilling. That, that's at a high level of generality. That's what most of the sort of physician practice or hospital cases are about. I mean, there's other there are other big problems in healthcare like kickbacks and unnecessary service type cases. But in the in the cases where there is a doctor involved, that is often exactly the scenario, the one you described. We've heard stories of you know referrals. Speaking of referrals, that talk to surgeons and they're like, you know, I had to leave after. I was excoriated by an admin for not sending one out of three of my patients that I consulted with for surgery into surgery. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like these things are happening. And and that's what you know, I was really excited to, to talk with you and see what you're seeing from your world, high level, big stuff, right? Um, taking down kind of the institutional level, but understanding that a lot of these interactions are actually happening on a, on a smaller level. They absolutely are. And, and they're mostly invisible to the government until somebody raises their hand and brings it to the government's attention. Because the, although the government does some like data mining where they try to like find the worst, you know, the, the most abusive billers in the system, that's a tricky way to find fraud and it doesn't always really work. And so it really is these, these false claims act cases, these key TAM cases, as we call them, that are brought by whistleblowers that are pretty much their primary enforcement tool. That's how um, these schemes get disclosed. When somebody on the inside gets sick of it and says, you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm losing my personal integrity. This is not how I want to practice medicine and so forth. And they feel like the only way to stop it is to disclose it. After uh, Seema Verna was leading CMS, because we're here, we're like, all right, we got an Indiana gal in there. This is going to be great. Nothing really got better. And I started laughing when you said the data part of it, because she was big on the data. Well, we got to have data. We got to collect all this data, all this data, all this data. And then, and then what? And anybody who spent five minutes in healthcare looking at stuff realizes that the data is an absolute mess. And that for the last 30 years, people have been trying to make sense of it. And I think we're still scratching the surface. So it. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's why I, I chuckled a little bit when you said data mining on that side of it. I'm like, goodness gracious, pulling from what system? No one's talking to each other, right? Well, they look at claims data. I mean, I guess the one thing that the one thing that you can do with the claims data is you can just you can compare providers and and the government does do this. So they'll look at a particular code in a particular subspecialty and they'll say, "Well, what is sort of the average rate of claims for this code?" And if you look at that and then compare providers, you can find the outliers. You can find the the doctors or the hospitals that are just billing some code at like a crazy rate, right? And it, you know, it's usually a, a very expensive code, right? And so that is the one thing that the government can do with, with, with codes. And when, we, and when we bring a case like that, the first thing the Department of Justice does is they pull that claims data and look at it. It doesn't tell them whether there's actual fraud occurring because sometimes there are real reasons why you, you get outliers. They may have a different patient population for whatever reason where they're actually using that procedure more than another doctor down the road or something like that. But, but it is at least a symptom that something might be going on there. Since we're uh, actually, the, the COVID pandemic is a, if, uh, actually declared over uh, as of this recording. Uh, <laughs> Thank so, God. <laughs> so anybody, anybody listening in the future can actually go back and timestamp uh, when, when we actually chatted with one another. But uh, that was big news out of the White House today. Yep. Anything coming out of the past couple of years where it, you, you looked at it and you researched it and you just shook your head like, 
how is this happening in the U.S. in 2022? Well, the big new fraud concern, and I think uh, HHS OIG actually just fairly recently published what they call a fraud alert on this. It involves uh, telehealth. And so this is an area where the government is looking very carefully now and is and is concerned that telehealth is susceptible to fraud schemes. And, and they've un- uncovered a number of fraud schemes and criminally prosecuted uh, people. Um, I think this is an area where, where doctors in particular, physicians need to be careful if they get approached by um, telehealth companies to really make sure that the company is acting ethically and isn't just sort of a, uh, becoming a mill and that they're, that they're billing appropriately for telemedicine services. So I know that, that that's an area that is of particular concern to HHS OIG right now, and obviously an area that just exploded with the pandemic. That makes a ton of sense. I always laugh, and, and, and people are going to just kind of roll their eyes when I say this, but telehealth was – I just didn't get it when, when hospitals were patting themselves on the back. They're like, hey, look, we can do telehealth visits now. And I'm laughing. I'm like, you could you could call Europe via the internet back in the '90s. Like, this isn't some new technology. You're just getting paid for it now because there's new some new billing code. So, yeah, I, I never really thought of that angle before, but that makes a ton of sense. I thought of these capabilities were rushed into hospitals and, and rushed into providers and physicians across the country. That there's always going to be somebody taking advantage of it. I'm sure. Jonathan, as I wrap up here, our last question for you. I'm going to give you your magic wand. Give you this crystal ball. I want you to wave it and say, poof, this this is now the perfect healthcare industry. What does it look like? Well, I mean, that's a policy question. I'm just a dumb trial lawyer. So I <laughs> I just I just sue people who violate the law. I mean, I, I I can say that like when you sit in the chair that I sit in, where you see the worst of the worst, right? I mean, we're seeing, you know, like I said at the beginning, I think the vast majority of people who work in the healthcare system are in it for the right reasons want to do right by their patients, you know, get frustrated by the bureaucracy and all that. But there are bad players, and 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 I'm seeing the worst of the worst because that's when it gets to my desk. Um, but certainly from that perspective, I, I, I will tell you that it has made me very sensitive to profit motive in the healthcare system. You know, I've had family members who have gone into the hospital and I kind of see how people are treated when they're in the hospital where, you know, just test after test after test for things that they didn't even go into the hospital for and the hospitals won't let them leave. <laughs> you know, it's like or they, they feel like they can't leave and you, you sort of get trapped in this sort of healthcare system and you get the sense that you're sort of just being milked for uh, insurance dollars. And because I come at it from this this perspective of having actually seen schemes, it makes me very suspicious of that. So I, I would say, you know, healthcare consumers should should go into the system with their eyes open, ask a lot of questions, don't assume that everything that is happening is for is in your best interests. But having said that, you know, I guess the conclusion that I've reached is that the best system we could have would be nationalized healthcare. And and I I, I was not somebody who thought that just uh, you know, five or 10 years ago. But I think the, the sort of layer of insurance that we've inserted, private insurance that we've inserted into our system, um, where you have these big companies that are essentially taking a cut of healthcare dollars to really just administer a bunch of paperwork is wasted money. It's what frustrates the doctors. It's what frustrates the patients. And I think some sort of 
simpler system that got rid of those insurance middle middlemen would be better. Now, how you do that, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not a I'm not a healthcare policy person, but that's sort of the conclusion that that I've reached. I, I I'm curious to know your perspective on that. You know, as somebody who actually works with with the doctors, you probably have a better better answer than I do. Well, I'm not a huge fan of the uh, socialized uh, healthcare one one payer uh, philosophy. We're we're very close to a monopoly right now, and it's not working for very, very many people. So let's go the other way. Let's go. Uh, let's tear down barriers. Let's 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 let the free market do its do its thing. Let's let's foster competition. Let's get rid of certificate of need laws. Let's uh, let's rein in nonprofit hospitals. And, and that's well, that was a question I was going to ask you. Do you do you see a difference in cases coming across your desk of for profit or nonprofit facilities? Um. I would say that a lot of the nonprofit healthcare systems are essentially gigantic corporations now. I mean, they're not, I don't know if they really operate that much differently. We laugh and we say, you know, your friendly local nonprofit hospital that doesn't pay property taxes and takes all the money that uh, uh, you pay into it and ships it at state and contributes nothing to the local economy. That's your friendly local nonprofit hospital for it. <laughs> and it's one of the leading, uh, leading causes of bankruptcy, too, for most of those local people. So. There, there's my there's my view about about local nonprofits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'm the guest and you're the host, but let me. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Like I said, we're having a cup of coffee. So, like in this in this system where where you would sort of you would go the other way, right? And you would get rid of all government funding. Is that what you're saying? I think there's still a safety net. I mean, if people need Medicaid, it's still it's still there. I'm not saying hey, abolish everything, but. This de facto opinion that I have to have insurance to go seek medical care is toxic to people. So how do you deal with the fact that like the vast majority of healthcare spending, right, it goes into end of life care for people that are quite old. And that that healthcare is enormously expensive, at least at least if you believe the EOBs. So how would you expect people to deal with that? Prolonging life for loved ones, elderly, that type of thing. Well, just, just, you know, again, anybody who's had elderly parents or who, who has been old themselves know that, like, no matter how much money you've saved through the course of your life, a huge percentage of that money just goes out the window the last few years of your life into the healthcare system because you're in and out of the hospital, you're in and out of nursing homes. And the, the types of services that you get as you get older in particular tend to be extremely expensive. Yeah, they're usually less complicated patients, which is always interesting. So they need the same kind of things over and over again. I've never been a proponent of saying, hey, look, you should, somebody should never, ever have health insurance, but treat health insurance more like we would for any other risk-adjusted financial tool. I'm a big fan of, of opening HSAs up, decoupling them from any, getting back on the policy side of it, decoupling them from high deductibles. I think high deductible health plans are the worst thing that could ever happen to the American citizen. Because most people only have maybe a couple hundred bucks, maybe a couple thousand bucks in savings. They can't afford a deductible anyways. And so, you know, go the BK route. Yeah. Going back to end of life care, that's a big decision, right? Um, I would say, look, we have savings. We have retirement plans that we build up as we our career progresses. Why aren't we doing that from a health saving side of it too? And And that's sins of the past, Jonathan, right? We're not going to go overnight and say, oh, hey, you look, you're 95. You don't have any savings accounts. Sorry, we're going to pull the plug. Can't do that. But I think we do have the ability to make it right where we're going to put savings and, and I'm not a big fan of automatic deductions out of paychecks or anything like that. But I know that the money I'm putting into Social Security is probably not going to be there. Same thing with Medicare is not going to be there in the next, what, three years, I think, I guess, before it's 
completely bankrupt. So, you know, why don't we say, hey guys, this is these are these are broken programs. Let's go a different route so that the money is there. But again, that's only half of the equation. The other half is coming out and saying, why are those services so expensive? Is it because they know that the government's going to be paying the bill? That's a rhetorical question. You know, the prices that we see from direct pay facilities and surgery and not just in primary care, but really invasive stuff, it's a fifth, it's a tenth of the cost of what you would get at the local hospital. So again, let competition come out and um, not have to sacrifice quality while doing it. But again, like take out not just that 10% of waste, but take out all the hands in the pie. That pie is going to stay the same. That pie doesn't get bigger or smaller. But if we can make the pieces bigger, then okay, there's going to be more cash to be able to do it. I guess I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is yeah. that if, if you go to a pure private pay system, there's just going to be less healthcare. It's going to shrink the healthcare system, right? Why is that? Well, because people are just going to make the choice to not seek healthcare that's too expensive, which they don't have to do right now. So an access question, but a lot of people do delay care or put it off because it's so hard to go see a doctor in the first place. and They don't know what it's going to cost. But that big chunk of the, the 70% or whatever it is of the healthcare dollars that, that, that go to old people. Right now, that's all covered by Medicare. And if you basically get rid of Medicare and and say, okay, people can just choose to buy that service or not, it seems to me inevitably people, some people are going to say, no, I'm not going to buy it. And you're just going to have to shrink the healthcare sector, which may not be a terrible idea. Maybe, maybe as a society, we just consume too much healthcare because it's being subsidized by the government, right? I think a lot of people would say, yeah, that's it's anybody who says, well, we spend the most and have the least amount of outcomes. It's like, well, are you actually advocating for that? So it and I'm big on choice, too. If, if people want Medicare, go go opt in your public one, but don't just do a complete takeover over here. Let let the market still function. Yeah. Well, OK. Like I like I said, this is way outside my area of expertise. <laughs> oh, that's so. right. Well, that's that's it's one of my favorite questions to ask, Jonathan, and and and, and I appreciate you um, being a good sport about it because a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, they, they deal with what's in front of them, right? And they say, well, how do you want to change it? And more times than not, a lot of people are like, well, I think the government just needs to step in, and you know, some people make some good points, and others are saying government is the problem here. And so it's fun to get people's take. And again, this has never been a big opinion show or gotchas or anything like that. Our purpose is just just to educate people and say, here's some things out here. Here's some options. Here's some really cool people to talk to. And so now I I appreciate uh, the back and forth and the dialogue. And and, uh, I think that's what always makes interesting discussions. Yeah, absolutely. It's a complicated issue. So Jonathan, last question for you. Uh, if anybody out there recognizes any problems, what's your advice to them? What should they do to see, kind of flush it out and make sure, you know what, this is something that needs escalated? Well, I mean, if you're employed in the healthcare system and you see your employer or a competitor or the company doing something that you think is fraud, like I said, the only way anybody's ever going to find out about that is if somebody comes forward. So if you can't solve the problem internally, and I always tell people, try to solve the problem internally, because sometimes companies are perfectly happy to do the right thing if they if they know what's going on. So use whatever the compliance procedures are you know, within your employer, definitely do that. But if after you've done that, um, the problem persists and it isn't being fixed, you know, at least think about coming forward. And th- there are lots of different ways to do that. And, and, and it, it, you know, it raises tricky legal issues. So 
definitely seek seek some legal advice um, from folks like me who who work in this area. But I think one thing we can all agree on, no matter what you think about all these healthcare policies and which way the healthcare system should work, is that fraud doesn't help anybody. And like I said, there will always be fraud in every system because that's just human nature. There are just criminals. And wringing the fraud out of the system works to everybody's benefit. Nobody wants to compete with with somebody else who is committing fraud across the street from you. Nobody wants to see that in the system. And so I think you know, helping to wring the fraud out of the system is something that uh, that that is the right thing to do, and that that everybody should should get behind, no matter what they think about which way the healthcare system should go. Jonathan Tico, an attorney at Tico and Zavari, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. I've enjoyed the discussion, and and I think a lot of people are going to get something out of this in more ways than one. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.